You're listening to Pastor Mike Greiner of Harvest Community Church in Catanning, Pennsylvania. We pray that you will be challenged today as you listen to a sermon entitled, God's Employee Search and the Glory of God, based on 1 Timothy 1, 12-17, recorded on Sunday, October 16, 2016. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org. Let's join Pastor Mike as he preaches. Our passage today is chapter 1, starting in verse 12. And going to 17, and it's kind of autobiographical about Paul. And now um, I could assume that everyone knows the story of Paul, but even if you do, you might want a little bit of a refresher. And then, of course, not everyone probably does. So I think it'll be good for us to go back to Acts for a little bit. And just let me read to you Acts from Acts 8 and 9 to show you how Paul came to know Christ. And before I go there, I want you to know Paul has two names, Saul and Paul, he may have other names. I don't know what his last name is. I don't know what his middle name is. I'm thinking it's something like Herman. Paul Herman Schwartz, I think, is his full name. But I'm not sure about the last two. But um, there is no explanation in the Bible why his name changes from Saul to Paul when he comes to know Jesus as Savior. Um, the best we can do with that is say that Saul was how the Hebrews would say it, and Paul is how the Romans would say it, and he identified himself a bit differently later. So when you see Saul, or hear me say Saul, it's the same guy, all right? So from Acts chapter 8, just let me read his story before we get into the text. It says, and Saul approved of his execution. Whose? Stephen's. Well, before this happened, there was a guy named Stephen in the, in the, in the church was young, and he was so full of the Holy Spirit that when he was arguing with the priests of the law about the gospel of Jesus Christ, he was untouchable. You couldn't lay a glove on him. He was so compelling because the Holy Spirit was helping him speak um, that his arguments were unmatched. And people listening, would, you'd obviously, you'd, if you listen to Stephen arguing with these priests, you'd say, he's winning that debate. There's no question about it. We don't need polls or anything. We know he's just beating them down. And after a particularly long beat down where he gives them the entire history of, of the Old Testament and lets them know that Jesus is Lord, they decide, um, we've had it with Stephen. We can't out-talk him, but we can all throw stones at his head and body until he's dead. And they picked up stones and decided to kill Stephen. Um, maybe the best way to deal with this Jewish sect that believes the Messiah came, well, people who would come to be called Christians, is just to start throwing rocks at their head. Um, that's never changed. That pattern's gone on for a couple thousand years. Eventually, people realize how annoying Jesus can be because he just doesn't agree with the way the world thinks, and they throw rocks at his followers' heads. So if you've ever been persecuted, you're in, in a good line of history. But for Stephen, he was our what we would call our first Christian martyr. Now, Jesus obviously died for the faith, but he rose again. So they killed him. And standing there was a young and important and up-and-coming rising star among the priests, one of the most learned, already seen as a leader. And they came and they threw their cloaks at his feet because it was beneath him to have to pick up the stones himself. And that was Saul. And he approved of the whole thing. And there he is mentioned in 8, 1 to 4. Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that. And just think about that a minute. If Saul approved of it, it means he heard the whole conversation. Which meant he heard one of the most compelling presentations of the gospel of Jesus Christ from one of the most powerful preachers of the day. So he knew the truth. And then he approved of the execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Now, now, this seemed to catch on. Look, we killed him. He's dead. He can't talk anymore. Why don't we just start beating up all of them? And so the, 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 the Christians had never left Jerusalem. They kind of hung out there waiting for Jesus to come back. They thought it would be soon. They had uh, their left behind books, and they're like, he's going to be back any moment. And he didn't come back. Instead, they started to be persecuted, and this caused them all to take off and go to other regions of their country, Judea, Samaria, all within Israel, and they're going wherever they go, except the apostles. Now, that means the big 12, they stayed in Jerusalem, and probably other Christians stayed there too, but in general, the leaders stayed there, and everyone ran. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over them. Normally, if a guy is stoned, you don't go touch him as a Jew. He's, he's trash. He's vermin. He's, he's, he's blasphemed. Like, so you know, here's some of these honor killings 
uh, in the Middle East. Maybe some woman disgraces her family by marrying a Christian or becoming a Christian, so they might kill her. Well, it's a, she's disgraced. Well, that's exactly how it would be for Stephen. He's disgraced among the Jews, but uh, much like Jesus with Joseph of Arimathea and, and uh, Nicodemus came to take his body from the cross, devout men obviously saying, we're not ashamed, and they, they buried him. But Saul was ravaging the church. He found his calling. I know how to stop these people. I'm going to take matters into my hands. Entering house after house. Church didn't have buildings then. They all met at the temple, the one spot in the world where there was a temple, and they were Jews. You know, Christianity is Judaism with the, with the Savior. And so they met there, and when they weren't meeting there, they met in homes. And so if that's where they are, Saul said, let's go there. And so he, and no doubt people he sent, uh, entered house to house, dragged off men and women, and committed them to prison. It, it, it's, the, the text is clear that it wasn't just the men. It didn't just take the leader. It took the men, the women, took anyone. Throw them in jail because they're worshiping Jesus. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. A beautiful moment there. Um, they, uh, the, the word of God, the, the, the truth that Jesus Christ died for sinners on the lips of anybody is powerful. All the more so on the lips of a believer. Never fall into the error of thinking that for someone to come to know Christ, to have all their sins forgiven, to go from being lost to found, an enemy of God to a friend of God, requires some kind of religious professional, because there isn't any such thing. Uh, you, you, Christian, with the word of God on your lips, have the power of God. This is why we're not ashamed of this message, because it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. And, and some think, well, I, man, I, I really want my friend to hear the gospel. I need to get him to my other more religious friend who will tell it to him. Or I need to get him to my pastor who will tell it to him. Look, I don't mind telling it to him. Bring him here on Sunday. I'll make sure I tell it to him. Or a Friday night in Catanning. And I will tell it to him. But the first and best person to tell him is you. Because you're there with him or her. And it's just as powerful coming from your mouth. And in fact, that's how, you know, they wouldn't leave Jerusalem. Jesus said, go into all the nations. They didn't go. They just kind of stayed there. So he says, okay. God allowed the squishing to come through pain. They took off. And what they do? Everywhere they went, they shared the message. Everywhere you go, share the message. At work, rest, or play, Milky Way. That used to be a commercial. Well, forget Milky Way. At work, work, rest, or play, Jesus. Let's jump down to chapter 9 where we see Saul again. It says, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. I love that word picture, breathing threats and murder. What's that look like? You know, you can hear him snorting. Threats, murder, threats, murder, threats, murder. Like, Saul, settle down. <laughs> but he, he, I mean, he's filled with rage. He's filled with rage. He's an angry guy. And he wants any follower of Jesus. So he goes to the high priest and asks him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that any found in the way, men or women, he might bring bound to Jerusalem. So, so, so just beating up the, the Christians in Jerusalem is not enough. I've, I've, they're all run away. They all ran away. I, I imprisoned all that we could. We beat up who we could. We stoned who we could. And they took off. Let's go find them wherever they go and stop this cancer that's invading our, our people. So let's go to the synagogues in Damascus. The difference between the synagogue and the temple is there's only one temple. And it's not there anymore, by the way. It's been torn down by the Romans. But it was there. And that's the holiest place. But the synagogue was like the local church to the Jews. And they could build them even in foreign lands. So he's like, well, there's probably some of these Jesus followers hanging out among our people in Damascus. Let's go get them. Give me a letter so I can go and drag these people to prison. So if any found belonging to the way, that was an early name for the church, the way, the way you should go. And he's going to bring them bound to Jerusalem. What does that even look like? I mean, he goes, finds people, he's got to bring rope, he's, he's going to tie them up, tie up the women. Does he put them in a cage or does he make them walk? I don't know. This is, he's serious. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, he's getting close to town. 
And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Now I cannot do this voice for you and do it justice. How in the Bible can we say out loud the voice of God? Because this is Jesus' voice. I know if you watch Jesus in the movies, this would have a, a British accent and probably a gentleness to it. Why in all our movies, all the Jesus people have British accents? I have no idea. They are not English. They're, they're Jews and, and Italians mostly. They should talk like, like Brooklyn Jews and, you know, what's the matter you, you know, and <laughs> that kind of thing. It's like Italians. And they should, they should be like, Saul, Saul, what are you doing here? But in the movies, it's, it's always British. That's neither here nor there. The point is, Use your own imagination to imagine how powerful this voice would have sound as you listen to my very not-so-powerful take on this. So he falls to the ground, and hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, Paul knew he was persecuting someone, but he apparently didn't realize who. And, and just to point out briefly, Jesus always associates himself very closely with his bride, the church. You hurt the church, you hurt him. So Paul said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you're to do. Knocks him to the ground, says, why are you persecuting me? Who are you? He knows it's God. He needs more data, I guess. I don't know. when. What's going on in Paul's head? No idea. When does the light come on? When he asks, who are you? When he falls to the ground? When he gets the answer? I don't know. It doesn't matter. It all happened pretty quickly. But at that moment, Jesus has taken over the machine. He's taken over the killer. He's taken over the enemy. He, he was on his way to get people and drag them off. And now he's like, boom, sit down. Now get up and go back where you were going. I have a new plan for you. And he's going to do it. That's the amazing part. Paul's going to do it. He's going to do it. Why would he do it? What changed in him in those moments? I don't know. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. How did this guy switch sides so fast? The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, as would you, (laughs) hearing the voice but seeing no one. So they heard the whole conversation. There's witnesses, but they couldn't see. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. He was blinded. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. So he's physically blinded going into Damascus, and perhaps that's even a picture of his spiritual blindness before, because he, he had physical eyes that could see before, and he was rushing off to Damascus foolishly, blindly, opposing the very God he claimed to serve. And that could be a description of a lost person. Maybe it was your description once. Maybe it's your description now. You may think you know, and you don't. For three days, he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank, and we don't know if Christ told him, why don't you fast? Or if he just said, I better fast, I'm meeting God. Three days without sight. Three days, why? I have no idea why. Does it remind you of three days, Jesus in the ground, or three days, Noah in the belly of the whale? Could be, but no one really knows why. Three days, the Bible doesn't say why three days. Um, just a reminder to all of you uh, scholars there, if you're ever in, on Jeopardy, and you hear a question from the Bible that involves a number, try three or 7, or 12, or 40. Most likely, you know, you got a 1 in 4 shot. It's going to be one of those numbers. Those are just like Bible numbers, so 3. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. This had to freak Ananias out. There's no reason to think Ananias was regularly dialing up heaven and getting these face-to-face talks. I mean, he might have been, but there's no reason to think so. It's unusual. That's why it's written down. And so he's got to be a little bit amazed. Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise. And notice he knew who the Lord was. He didn't have to ask. Holy Spirit's in you. You know who he is. Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said, rise and go to the street called Straight. It's just the name of the street. 
And of the house of Judas, this is not the bad Judas, he's dead. And Judas used to be a respectable name before the bad Judas kind of ruined it for all the other Judases. It's like Adolf. Who names their kid Adolf anymore? Nobody. (laughs) It's just not popular. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. It's a very specific instruction, isn't it? And a nice, here's the street. Talk about GPS. Here's the street. Here's the name of the guy. Here's the name of the guy who owns the house. So it shouldn't be hard to find. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen a vision, in a vision, a man named Ananias. That would be you. Come in and lay his hands on him that he might regain his sight. So, so Paul is somewhere praying. He can't see, but in a vision, he can see. And he sees this man he's never met, Ananias, a man presumably he was coming to try to find and bind up and drag to Jerusalem if he had met him. But now he's blind, and Ananias is going to be the one who comes and sees him. Uh, um, Just a side note here. um, A lot of times people wonder, how do I know if God is talking to me or not talking to me? And they can be very disturbed, um, especially if someone comes up and says, God told me something. And then you wonder, did God tell that person something? I want you to know when people tell me God told them something, I consider it, but I have no way of proving it. So I don't do more than consider it. But notice, God understands that we need to know when he's speaking. And notice how all the confirmations he put in. He's like, Ananias, I'm going to make this easy for you. I'm going to tell you the street, the name of the owner, and the man in there, and what he's doing. He's praying. And he goes to Paul, and he says, I'm going to make this easy for you. A man's going to come, and when you can finally see, you'll know he looks like this. He's going to lay hands on you, and you're going to see. Now, that's God kindly showing both of them, I'm talking to you. Because you can prove it. And that could happen to you. I don't think that that's against happening. I've heard stories of, of people, uh, Muslims, um, seeing Christ in a vision and being told, go down to this village and you'll meet a, a man and they'll run into a missionary and they'll say, God told me to talk to you. And the guy says, well, that's amazing. I was supposed to come here. Okay, I think, okay, we, can, we, we have some checks and balances here. So don't worry about uncertainty. If you don't know if God's talking, assume you don't need to know. And read your Bible. You know he's talking there. But that's a side note. In this case, they both know. But Ananias answered, Lord. Now Ananias gets what the Lord has told him to do. He knows who Saul is. Everybody knows who Saul is. When a terrorist is coming to your town to terrorize you, and he's got the government on his side, everybody knows who he is. And he's like, Lord, uh, I've heard from many about this man. Uh, He's all the chatter, you know. Every time we get together for a community group, they're talking about, this guy's always going to come get us. I ran here to get away from him. And how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. Saint being anyone who's a believer is a saint. And here he has authority from the chief priests. They even knew his business to bind all who call on your name. Now notice, you've got to love Ananias. He doesn't say, he doesn't dare to say, Lord, are you sure you know what you're talking about? Because you don't say that to Jesus. But he comes as doggone close as you can come, doesn't he? He says, you mean the Saul who ties us up and throws us in prison and kills Stephen? That's the Saul you want me to talk to? And the Lord, because he's patient with us and he understands. And this is why when you pray, by the way, you should never be afraid to pray out loud in front of other believers. I know you think, boy, I'm going to blow this thing. You can't blow it. You're just talking to God. And you shouldn't try to church it up. Don't church it up. Just be yourself. And that's what Ananias says. He's being himself. And he's like, "Mm." so the Lord says, look, he gives him a little strength, a little encouragement. He says, go. Remarkable words here. For he is a chosen instrument of mine. He's a tool I have chosen. He's a worker I'm recruiting. He's going to be working for our company now. I went out on a job search, monster.com, found this guy. Go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. What a job pitch that will be. You're causing suffering for my people. We're going to turn that around. I'd like you to be blind, walk into town. I'm going to send a guy to make you unblind, and then 
I'm going to explain to you how much suffering you're going to do, and you're going to work for me. And you know the wild part is, Saul goes, okay, works. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. <laughs> or did he say, Brother Saul. <laughs> the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, he knows he appeared to him on the road, because how do you know that? The Lord told me has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Physical sight is is of some value, no doubt. But the Holy Spirit sight is the value that's greater. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Interesting to note, as as another parenthesis here, is that that we almost, I, I can't think of examples in the Bible where Jesus does all the evangelism and leaves it at that. Even when he has these miraculous appearances, he sends a man. He sends a human being to connect you to the church. So Ananias is the connector. He comes and he explains what needs to be explained, and he baptizes him. And baptism is the ancient rite of passage to get into God's church. It's the doorway. All believers in Jesus Christ should be baptized after they have a profession of faith. Now, if some of you here might be saying, well, wait a minute. I think I believe, and I know I believe, and I think I'm saved, but I haven't been baptized. What should I do? Should I panic? Don't panic, but be baptized. Um, And and you're like, well, how do I do this? Uh, Relax. (laughs) You have a connect card somewhere. Right on it, I want to be baptized, and your campus pastor will call you on the phone, and we'll take care of it. That's the rite of passage in, and notice a man connected Saul to the church. And so, he was baptized, he took food and was strengthened, and for some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. When you see disciples here, don't think the 12 disciples, or more specifically, the 12 apostles. Anyone who's a follower of Christ should be able to wear appropriately the term disciple so the disciples so he's hanging out with the church there probably many of them ran from jerusalem when the same guy could you imagine that coming to church coming to community group that week uh what's he doing here (laughs) uh are we all captured i'm leaving he's on our side now and immediately he proclaimed jesus in the synagogues once you believe in jesus how long should you wait to tell someone about him how about one second You're ready to go. Don't I need to know more? You don't need to know nothing except that Jesus saved you. Saying, he is the son of God. And all heard him were amazed and said, ah, (laughs) who is this guy? Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? I mean, don't assume that all who heard are all believers you got unbelievers going i thought he was on our side (laughs) but saul increased all the more in strength most likely that means spiritual strength and we can assume and i know it's an assumption but he he did miracles by the holy spirit in an extraordinary way probably that is being referred to also and he confounded the jews who lived in damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. I mean, this guy knew the Bible. Remember the Bible? We didn't have the New Testament yet. Paul was going to write a good bit of it. And, 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 and so he knew the Bible from Genesis to Malachi backwards and forward. He was a Jew of Jews. Try out arguing him when he's convinced that Jesus is Lord. You ain't going to win that fight. So that's what it's saying there. It's like he was proving that Jesus is the Christ. Well, I guess I lost that argument. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Let's just do a Stephen on him. (laughs) We can shut him up, hit him with a rock. But their plot became known to Saul. And they were watching the gates by day and night in order to kill him. Let's just wait until he comes or goes. And his disciples took him by night and led him down through the opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And, you know, we sometimes have to suffer for Christ. We should rejoice when we have to suffer for his name. He said so because we have a great reward in heaven. It's part of the confirmation you're his. But if you can run away in a basket, do it. Only a fool takes a beating he doesn't have to take. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. He attempted. He's like, I'm going to go to church. The the guys, the church in Damascus likes me. I'm going to go here. (laughs) He's burned a lot more bridges there. And they were all afraid of him. And they didn't believe he was a disciple. He's undercover. 
He's fooling you. He's fooling you. Don't trust this guy. He's a snake. But Barnabas, good old Barney, took him and brought him to the apostles. Barnabas said, come here. I got a little clout. If I say it, they'll trust me. And he declared to them, he says, the 12, can we talk? None of the guys will even talk to this guy. Could you help me out? And he declared to him on the road he'd seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he'd preached boldly in the name of Jesus. You think, didn't they know? They didn't have Facebook. There was a time when you just didn't know what happened in another city the same moment. I know, crazy, right? But Barnabas knew. So he says, let me tell you what was happening in Damascus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. All right, that's our Paul. That's the guy who's talking, who wrote this letter to Timothy. He's much older now, nearing death. He's done a lot of good service. But that's who he refers to when he talks about himself. So let's, um, let's look at 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 17. With this in mind, you can see why he says this. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because... I'm thanking him for this reason. He judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. He he looked me over and said, he'll he'll do. He'll be a good worker for me. Come here, I got a job for you. That's what he's saying. And I thank him for that. For though formerly I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, I was an insolent opponent. He, He finds three words to say, I was on the wrong team. I was Satanist. I was... Devil, I was hater. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Because of the way that translates into English, it might sound that God didn't, ah, it's okay, you didn't know what you're doing. But that's not what it's saying here. What he's saying when he says, because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, he's saying I needed mercy because of the way I acted. I received mercy because I needed it, is what he's saying. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. What, what beautiful words. He's already said, I receive mercy. Now he's going to say grace, faith, and love. Grace, that free gift. And how much grace, how much free acceptance, how much approval did heaven give to you, you awful, awful man? He says, it's so much that it overflowed. How much grace do you need, Paul? Heaven says, well, I just need a little. I'm really rotten, and I understand why you wouldn't want to accept me. You're still pouring. It's filling up. It's overflowing. We're just going to keep pouring, Paul. No grace runs out for you. With the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying, this is, verse 15 is the, is the king of this chapter. This is the verse that stands the highest. It's the top of the mountain. And it's definitely the center of this text. He says, this, say, this saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance. Pay attention to what I'm saying. Everybody should accept this. No one should argue with this. Were you not listening? As Timothy read these, he, you, you might, you know, when he read the letter to the church the first time. Well, you better stop and listen now. Because what I'm about to say, everybody should just gr- grab. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I'm the first. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, or the first, or the the worst sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. He's saying, look, Jesus had mercy on me so he could glorify his own self. So people would look not at Paul and say, what an amazing guy he is. They'd look at Jesus and say, look how patient he is. At this point, In verse 17, he's not even finished, but it's almost like Paul is having an emotional crescendo worship moment. He's like, I can't even go on with this letter without some sort of doxology, some sort of statement of praise. He goes, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And what's he thinking about? He's thinking about his own salvation. He's so amazed that God saved him and used him that he goes... Timothy, i got to stop this letter and let's just sing a song. Praise God. The big, the big, what's the biggest possible picture of what God's doing in mankind? You know, God made man in his image. He didn't make your dog in, your, in his image. He didn't make trees and fish and squids. Definitely didn't make squids in his image. 
but he made man in his image. And think about that. He made a creature on the earth that reflected heaven and the creator. And that would glorify him if the world was populated, fill the earth, multiply, populate the earth with these beings that reflect me, that show my greatness just by being. But they all fell. They fell into sin. They marred themselves. They broke themselves. And fell sounds so passive, they also rebelled. They became haters of God instead of lovers of God. And all mankind has that problem. The whole story of the Bible is how Jesus comes and redeems his own name, redeems his own image, and how he does all the work. And that's why Paul just says, hey, I didn't do this. Just think about that. Why? What does God want out of mankind? He doesn't want a bunch of people promoting themselves, a bunch of little self-exalting, Satanist, secularists, I'm the best, everything, worship me, people. Those people that reflect his glory. One way, perhaps you can think of it this way. Let's say you, you started a company, and, and in your startup plan, you had a lot of money for advertising, and you hired the best advertising, and you had signs put up all over the county, and they were beautiful, well-designed, colorful everyone loved they see a sign say man i know your business is going to be great because your signs are awesome and so all the signs they're everywhere hundreds of them and all they do is reflect the glory of the company you're going to have and you're happy because they're a good reflection and you go to bed one night get up the next morning and every one of them's been defaced and i mean horribly stuff no one wants to look at disgusting creepy stuff pornographic images horrible just horrible things written all over them and they're all disgraced and now your company is disgraced by every single sign that was supposed to bring it glory. That's the picture of fallen man. And what God is doing in the earth when he sends Jesus is he's, re- he's recovering it. Jesus Christ came and he reflected the glory of the Father perfectly. His death, his, his, death, his blood bought sinners so that he could restore and here's Paul saying, I'm saved. God is great. And now he's been fixed. He's glorifying the Father. And one day when the Lord returns, and we see Paul as God intends him to be, because none of us are a finished product, according to Romans. He has an intention that we will one day be like his son, and we will be unveiled, if you will, when the, when, when the children of righteousness are shown as we're really to be. The glory of God will beam from every human. And that's why Paul says, praise be to God. So three important truths we see in Paul's words. One, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's what he says right in the middle of our text. This saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance. Jesus Christ came in. Why did Jesus Christ come into the world at all? Why leave the throne in heaven? Jesus was happy in heaven. God was happy. God is happy. There is no one happier in the entire everythingness. I was going to say universe, but he's bigger than the universe. Than God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three in one, never lonely, never alone, never bored, always delighted. Guess who's having a good day today? God. Guess who's delighted beyond delight today? God. God had no needs. And he didn't need us. Why did he leave heaven? This is why, by the way, it's very important. And we instruct our teachers. And we want them to always remember that when they teach children, they should get rid of all the pap and poppycock and foolishness that says, Jesus came and he loves you and wants to save you because Jesus needed a friend. Like he's some pathetic, lonely, no, little children, he doesn't need you. Little children doesn't need you at all, is the real truth. And that's what we need to teach children. But he, he glorifies himself by pouring his love out on you. He's not pathetic. He's not needy. He's not worried. Why did he leave heaven at all? Well, the answer Paul gives us is startling. And he says, you better accept this fully. 
Don't take this in half measures. Don't take this and parse it out and try to change it. Take it just like I say it. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Why did Jesus leave heaven to take on a body and join us? To save evil people. To rescue evil, to rescue evil people. He did not say, he was not up in heaven looking down, saying, man, look at all those good people suffering by their sin and other people harming them. All those nice people, they're hurting down there. I need to take on flesh and help them. No. There were no good people. Because of their goodness, his merciful heart was moved. He came to save evil people. There's a misconception that goes throughout time, and I guess it will until he comes back, but we need to, therefore, confront it every generation. That misconception is the church is a place for good people to go and sinful people to avoid. First church isn't a building. Wherever we gather is our place. It's a people. But it's, it's not for good people. The church isn't for good people. People even joke about that. They say, go to, go to church with you. If I ever went to a church, what, they, what do they say next? The walls will fall down. I got news for you. I got news for you. The person you think is best sitting in any, right now listening to my voice, in any of our campuses, the one you think is the holiest person in here, if sin could hurt walls, that person's sin would pull the walls down on all of us and drop that holy person down to the center of the earth. There is no sinner who's going to walk into God's and have him say anything but, thank you, I invited you, the walls were made for you. Where does this conception come that the church is for good people and evil people don't go there? When the Bible says it's worthy of full acceptance, Christ died for sinners. He came for, to save sinners. That's why nothing's uglier than Christians constantly, when they do, being offended by the behavior of bad people. You don't share the behavior, but you, did you forget where you came from? There's a really silly bumper sticker that I think illustrates this well, the misconception that humans have about why Jesus came to the earth. And I don't know if you've seen this bumper sticker before. I've seen it before in life. It's not super common, but I've seen it more than once. It says, it says, heaven doesn't want me and hell's afraid I'll take over. Any of you have ever seen that? Okay, it's the silliest thing in the world. When I see that, I just want to pull the guy over and say, can we talk? I mean, I used to be this silly too, and this is really dumb. You, you, what makes you buy that and put it on your car? I mean, someone has to actually fork out a couple bucks, take off the back and clean the bumper and put that on their car. Something in them must be rationalizing why it's okay that they're not good. Listen, I got good news for you. You're completely wrong about the first half of that sticker. Not only does heaven want you, Jesus Christ came to the world to save you. He got in front of the bus to save you. He shed his blood to buy you. And second, hell is not afraid of you. In fact, <laughs> hell is not the home of Satan. He's not even there yet. It's going to be his eternal dwelling and punishment. And they're not afraid of you taking over. If you go there, you're going to be nothing. Powerless, tormented. Jesus, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's, it, it has, it has a, that sentence has a power to re- reform our thoughts and behaviors and emotions. If we'll just not go too fast. And just, maybe you should memorize that. Jesus, Matthew 9, there's a story. It says, as Jesus reclined at table in the house, he would go to anyone's party, rich, poor, whatever. He, had, he was not discriminating about who his friends were. <laughs> All the socialists said, why does he hang out with the rich? All the rich says, why does he hang out with the scum? He's like, I like everybody. 
Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came. And they were reclining with Jesus. And they just pulled right up. They just sat right down. Hey, I'm eating with this dude. And his disciples. And the Pharisees saw this. And they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? The implication is, doesn't he know what losers, what sinners they are? Does he want to be stained by them? My answer, if I was there, would be, Why don't you ask him? Because I'd want to see the fireworks, because every time Jesus talks to these guys, he eats their lunch. Go ask him, and I'll watch. Matthew, get your pen. It's going to be good. You want to get this into the Bible. But they don't. Instead, Jesus heard him say it, and he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He's like, I think, I came to earth for for the holy people. Is that what you thought? I came to earth for the unholy people. Because first, there are no holy people, but if you think you're holy, if you think you're righteous, if you think you're better than someone else, if you think you're better than those religious people, you're never, you are a religious person, and you think you're better than the non-religious, you're never going to see God. Because you won't go to the doctor if you don't think you're sick. These people seem to know they're sick, and they like that I'm here telling them about heaven. Go learn what this means. This is a kind thing to say to the Pharisees. He wants them to, he says, think about this. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. What does it mean I desire mercy and not sacrifice? God is a God of mercy. To put it in other words, he's saying, Jesus is saying God is about forgiveness, not payback. I'm going to pay back the Father for your sin. You can't. Don't even try. It's an insult. Your righteousness, filthy. I will do it. He's holy. He goes to the cross. He substitutes himself for you and I. I will do it. You don't want to deal in sacrifice. In other words, I don't want payback. In other words, I don't want your religion. I don't want you showing me how you church yourself up Quit your drinking, stop your lying and cheating, started going to church, went to Sunday school, showed up on Wednesday night and thought, okay, now he's going to be happy with me. Don't come here and tell me you got your little sacrifice in order, you did your little festivals, you showed up on Easter, and so God's going to be pleased. I don't want your sacrifice. I'm about mercy because I deal with sinners. If you were all holy, I'll take your sacrifice, but you're not. Just... Christian, remember verse 15. This saying is trustworthy, deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And I would go farther, say it to someone in the world this week. I don't know if you noticed, but the world is a crazy and dangerous place out there. And increasingly, I'm going to give you a prophetic word. By prophetic, I don't mean I heard a word from God, but it's true from Scripture, and I'm going to tell you this is the truth. The safest place in the future, in this country, is going to be among holy, devout, humble, blood-washed, faithful people of God. And there's a lot of people out there dying, hurting, with no one and nothing to protect them, running to this hero and that hero, and they're all horrible heroes. They're abused, and you, my friend, have the shelter, and you don't tell them. You don't tell them. There doesn't need to be an empty seat in any of our campuses. Pastors coming up with new ways to market or do outreaches, that's just It just lets people know we're here. If there's empty seats, when is the last time you brought someone who needs shelter from this world in? It's time to do that. You say, well, I don't know what to say. Stop being a sissy. You know what you got saved? You know your story? I don't know your story. You tell it. But if you want power, just remember this simple phrase. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Hello, friend, can I tell you something? What? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. What are you talking about? Oh, I'm glad you asked. Let me explain it to you. 
There, I, I believe most likely a day will come when every one of you who really loves Jesus will be saying it all the time because it's going to be so needed. And you'll say, why wasn't I always this urgent? So just get moving. Second, Paul's life stands as an example to all that they could be saved. Now, I didn't say this. Paul says this. He says, I am the worst. I am the foremost. Now, you may say, well, wait a minute. I know some really bad people. You know, and I know of bad people. There's child rapists and serial killers. There's Hitler and Stalin. And, and there's some really bad people that had to have been worse than Saul of Tarsus. Look, that's your opinion. It's in the Bible that he's the worst. He must know he's the worst. And f- perhaps we need to take his word for it. <laughs> some people who don't like what, what, what the Bible says will say, I agree with the Bible, but I just don't agree with some things Paul said. What kind of stupidity is that? He wrote the Bible. You're saying I don't agree with some things God says. Well, oh, so you don't agree with God. Maybe God should change his agenda for you. He says he's the worst. Take his word for it. He was a Jew of Jews. He knew the Bible backwards and forward. If there's anyone who said I should have known, he should have known. He heard Stephen tell him the gospel. And he killed him for it. I mean, that's got to be close to Judas. Who heard Jesus and betrayed him for it. He said, I'm the worst. He said, there's nothing good about me. If Even if you look at his salvation, he didn't do anything to charge himself up before he got saved. Nothing. Where are you going? Stop going there. Oh, keep going there. But this time you got a new job. And lest there be any doubt that salvation is all the work of Jesus and not the work of the saved. So if there's anyone saying, well... I hear what you're saying, but I know God just can't forgive me. You're you're tormented by sin. You're struggling with OCD. Something like that. Okay, whatever. Wrong. Quit your your wallowing in self-pity. It's a lie. You don't know what I did. I don't care what you did. It's a stubborn excuse to stay away from God. A stubborn excuse to live where you you feed yourself your own self-pity so you can sit around and do nothing and say, I'm just not good enough. Knock it off. You're not a super sinner so good at sin that God can't save you. Oh, look at you. Woo! Pulled it off. He's first. You're second. You're probably 18,433rd. You're probably, there's some really good sinners out there. There's no one so bad that God can't save them. I hear people say, well, don't tell him. He's so far from the gospel. How do you know? Everybody is a million miles away from God and everybody's an inch away. That nice person who you think is reasonable, they could be the most stubborn blockhead. You could tell them the gospel the day they die and they're going to die and go to hell even though they're really nice people. Would you get some nasty guy that even the cops are afraid of? He hears Christ died for sinners and he weeps like a baby and comes to Jesus. You don't know. Third thing, third and last truth I want to emphasize here is this is the amazing part. should make us all, I think, cheerful today is that God entrusted Paul to be his servant. That's the whole point of the text, this particular phrase. He says, I thank God that he used me. He died for sinners. Look at me. (laughs) Look at me. (laughs) He died for sinners. I'm, I'm the worst. And look, I'm not kidding. And you use me. I, what's he say he thanks God for? I'm thanking you, God, that you found me faithful. He doesn't mean he found him being faithful. He means he, he trusted him, even though he's the worst sinner. Which God used his greatest enemy to become perhaps his best servant, not counting Jesus himself. And if you don't believe it, read the book of Acts. He searched for employees among his haters and say, who hates the company the most? Him. He's CEO. Who does that? (laughs) Why do that? For his glory. Because then you know it's all of Christ. It's not a Paul. In fact, what did Paul give up? He gave everything. He gave up his prestige, his money, his health, his freedom. He He was... 
beaten with the same lashes Jesus was, but not once, three times. He was thrown in jail. He lost everything. He was always running for his life. He was shipwrecked. Once he was even, they even threw stones at him because they thought he was dead. He was stoned to death. They thought. And then they left and he got up and walked away. It's like, it was like a possum. <laughs> right? He's like, he's dead. Let's get out of here. He's like, they gone? Okay, let's do this. I don't know what the uh, NFL concussion protocol would do with him, but he got up and left. Imagine someone steals from you, and they're sneaky about it. They plan it out. They think about where your garage or barn or wherever your stuff is. And they sneak in by night when you're not there, and they take your stuff, and you catch them red-handed, and they go, you caught me red-handed, and you say... Why'd you steal? Because I hate you. Okay, here's what I'm going to do. Here are the keys to my house, keys to my car, all my passcodes to everything on my phone and my computer. I'm putting you in charge of everything. You're like, who would do that, Jesus? Now, if you look at Paul, hopefully you're a little amazed. But do you realize it's the same with you and I? Christian, Don't think like the world. You are not here to consume, to be blessed. You were taken from rebelling against God and made a worker. And you don't deserve the job. We have a lot of people. Let's just take Sunday mornings and Friday nights. We have a lot of people volunteer to make this go. A lot of people get up very early in the morning, earlier than you, to make this go. A lot of people work hard. They take days off, sometimes vacation days, to make sure things get done so we can gather together and worship, to make sure kids are taught. And I appreciate everyone, but I never want to give a single one the impression that somehow they've earned anything. And nor should they think I have. We don't even deserve to be working for him. And I'm just talking about church work is not just in the church. The, the one who by faith disciples her children and teaches them the Bible. And by, by faith um, reaches out at work or just does good deeds. Sees their brother in need and financially helps them or, or cares for the sick and hurting. All those church work. Good. I applaud it. Do it every day. But never think, okay. Okay, I'm bringing a sacrifice that's going to get me somewhere. No, wrong. You, You don't deserve the job. It's an honor to have it. It's an honor to have it. You say, well, that can't be what the scripture says. Well, in Luke 17, starting in verse 7, Jesus says, Well, any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep, say to him when he's come from the field, Come at once and recline a table. If you guys, and he's talking about the normal culture, not necessarily how you should treat an employee. You got a servant. You pay him. He does what you want. He plows when you say plow. He works when you say work. You better not come in the living room and see him kicking up, drinking your soda, and watching a TV show. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me? That's your job. Dress properly too. Clean yourself up. You smell like the field. And serve me while I eat and drink. And after I'm done, and you do what you're supposed to do, you can eat and drink. Does he thank the servant? Because he did what was commanded. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. Now, this is not Jesus saying you should treat people and not thank you. It's not about a Christian ethic. As a boss, if you're a Christian, there's other places Jesus teaches us you should be kind. You should say thank you. You might serve your employee. That's not his point. His point is a servant who's paid to be there to do what he's supposed to do is only doing it because he's getting paid. And he should not expect that he's some kind of hero. And he's saying your internal attitude should be everything I do for the Lord, I do as an unworthy servant. It's my duty. This does not mean that Jesus will treat you like a slave. Trust me, our employer, is, the benefits are out of this world. <laughs> he's, he, he's awesome. You will get paid more than you deserve. 
That's clear in many places in Scripture. You do a little, he gives you a lot. Some people come at the end of the day, don't do nothing. They get a lot. But he does not want us to forget the grace terms by which we work. The person who goes around church saying, well, I've done enough. I've done so much for the Lord and nobody else does it, but I do it. And oh, look at me. Oh, look at you. If you don't want to do it, quit. Jesus' servants are unworthy of the job. I am unworthy of the job. I try to tell you this, people, all the time. I say one of the biggest things that makes me laugh inside is I'm the preacher. (laughs) You think I'm kidding about my past. You think I'm kidding about how can I be here. But I don't think it's wrong. It's to God's glory. He says, you are not worthy. Want a job? You say, well, I don't want to work for God on those terms. I want him to appreciate my value. My friend, you forgot where you came from. He came to earth to save sinners. Either you are a sinner who's saved or you're not in the club. It's an honor to serve Jesus no matter what it costs. And the, Paul's life says that. And he says it. I count it all but rubbish. I get beat up. I get shipwrecked. I get thrown in jail. I don't care. This light affliction is nothing compared to the weight of glory that awaits me. The crown I'm going to get. It's an honor. He's so good to me. If you don't live your life serving him, You've got some version of Christianity from the culture that just is a great big lie. I hate to say this, but I know it's true. I, sit and, I said to everyone, preach these words, Christ came to, to save sinners. I know that probably more than half of you will never do that. I hate to say this, but I know it's true. Some of you listening are not going to be in heaven. You're going to be in hell. I wish it weren't true, but I've been around long enough to see how people act. If, you, if, you, if this is a vending machine, you're just at church to get the blessing till it stops being working for you. Then you'll go to the other church to get you the blessing. You have no clue what the Bible says. Well, I memorize the Bible. I don't care. So do the Pharisees. So do Paul. It doesn't matter what it costs you. It's an honor. Every Sunday, there's a group who meets in my office and we pray and then we come out. I appreciate every one of them and I mean it. My heart grows in love for everyone as they serve. I'm like, I'm so happy they're here. So I fully appreciate it. But once in a while, I'll remind them, one day, a Sunday's gonna come and no one's gonna want us to do this. So you better appreciate it. One day, no one's gonna want me to preach. I'll be up here slobbering all over myself. And my honor, my joy... Scott Rising, in a sermon, took a quote from Livingstone and used it this summer. And I thought, Scott, that was a good quote, but here's what I don't think is good. You didn't use it enough, so I'm going to say it again. He said this, if a commission by an earthly king is considered an honor, how can a commission by a heavenly king be considered a sacrifice? But you have people who will never go to church. They just get out of the habit because, dang it, I got to go to camp every weekend. Oh, well. There is a fire that needs you to sit by it. My kid plays hockey, so we don't do church. Oh, well, yeah. Who could ask you to give that up? We'll come on Friday night. If a commission by an earthly king is considered an honor, how can a commission by heavenly king be considered a sacrifice? Nobody come and say... I've given so much to the church. I've given so much to Jesus. Yeah, last I checked, our God gave all when you were stealing. And I was stealing. This is sounding heavy. I didn't want to make it heavy, so let me end on Mark. If God wants to make it heavy, let him. Let me, I want to end it on Mark 1, 17 and 18. And we've killed the time, which I know causes trouble here in Catanning and at all the campuses. Jesus had dealt with these fishermen for enough. They got to know him. And one day he just walked up to him and said, 
follow me and I'll make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And I think we go too fast by that. When, when fishermen leave their nets, they leave everything. And that's what he said to you. And a lot of you said, I'm coming. Well, I'm just reminding the faithful and trying to prick the unfaithful to wake up. But the faithful, I'm reminding you, this is a good thing we have. We can run. We can give all. I don't mind asking you to give more because God asks you to give everything. You can give all so that my goal in coming here every week to talk to all of you is always the same. I want when you die, the thing to be said in heaven is this. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever because of this person. Like Paul said of himself, I want that to be you. I want it on your tombstone. I want it on my tombstone. I want it to be on your lips as you expire. Unless you get struck by lightning and die too fast. Who's ready? Who's ready? Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.